Hello and welcome to the Lively Faith Podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Nathan Stomberg, Rector of Holy Communion Anglican Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And today I'm joined by the Reverend Mark Galloway, Presbyter at Holy Communion. And we're also joined by Corey DuPont, Subdeacon at St. Mary Antiochian Orthodox Church in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And before we get started, some quick housekeeping First, I'm overjoyed to share that at the time of this recording, we have received over 2,000 2,000 combined listens and views with over 500 unique listeners. Praise God. That is incredible. And thank you, our dear listeners, for your support and thank God for his blessings. Awesome. It's Corey. He's dragging them in. <laughs> it's definitely Corey with that beard. Yes, it will never be steered wrong. It is. That said, we do know, dear listener, that most of you have not subscribed. And so we firmly but lovingly encourage you. We can't tell you what to do, but we encourage you to hit that subscribe button or follow button wherever you watch or listen. We appreciate your support as always and we thank you for your continued prayers so without further ado let's get started we've got a great conversation for us today we're going to be talking all about eastern orthodoxy and for anyone who's watching online you'll see that our co-host Corey here is wearing a cassock today and i think that's maybe a good place to start Corey. um what is up with the cassock? Why, why wear the cassock in your tradition? And also p- explain the position of subdeacon. <laughs> I think that's maybe a good place to start, right? Mm. We, we know that you're part of the, uh, the Orthodox faith. And I think for many, if not most, in the Western or Latin traditions, it's something of an enigma, and we've touched upon that in episodes past. And so what we'd really like to do is clear up a lot of that mystery sure. around, around the Orthodox tradition for us. And so we'll jump into that general Q&A. So would you care to speak a little bit to the, the choice of, of Cassock and the role that plays in, in tradition and, and witness and um, the liturgy? of the Orthodox tradition. Sure. Um, there's no, there's no real exact history necessarily of, of the cassock or, or what it's called in the Greek, the, the Ritza. Um, it's, it's partly, um, due to monastic use, right? Um, because clergy used to be trained in the monasteries, the seminaries are, are, are really Western creations. They didn't really come to the East until recent history. Um, And so um, the the other the the other interesting part about it, too, is um, it's common for anyone in holy orders or even minor orders, what what are called minor orders, and the two minor orders in the church are subdeacon and reader. Hmm. Uh, For example, just last Sunday, we had a a gentleman, young man in our in our parish who was tonsured a reader. Um, and he was given the cassock. Would you explain no. what tonsured means? Yes, tonsured, yes, I can explain that. Tonsured. Um, Western or Latin Christians would probably be familiar with this word because it's something that is done to someone when they become a monk. 
when they enter a monastery or tonsured, they usually will take hair from your head. Hmm. Um, in my case, that's not going to be possible. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the, the young man who was tonsured, a reader last Sunday, he's bald too, but he had some facial hair, so the bishop just cut a little bit of his facial hair off and tonsured him. So, um, but in the Orthodox Church, um, anyone who undertakes any particular order will be tonsured. So a subdeacon or a reader will be tonsured hmm. before they are given that, that official position within the parish. Um, deacons and priests, of course, are not tonsured. They're ordained, right? Just just like in, in Anglicanism or in Catholicism. Would you be um, able to explain the uh, the purpose of the tonsure or the symbolism behind the, the taking of hair? Yeah, the, the symbolism behind it would be that a part of you now is being given up slowly, hmm. right? And then the rest of your life, you'll give up more of yourself to this ministry. And usually also, um, it's hoped that this would be a beginning to, to the priesthood, hmm. right? Um, as a matter of fact, in the prayers for being tonsured for a reader, um, it's actually referred to as the first order of the priesthood. So, right. so these are the steps you're going through towards. Yes, yes, that's exactly. So correct. I think in comparison to maybe someone who goes to an evangelical or non-denominational church where someone in a role of like a reader or a deacon would view those as just uh, either other separate roles or vocations within the mm. church, this is viewed more in terms of a, a succession, maybe for lack of a better term. It, 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 yes, it is. Or a sequence. It, it could be. But we also have permanent deacons as well. Hmm. You know, we do have permanent deacons. Um, as a matter of fact, we there's been a, a growth of the permanent diaconate in some of our jurisdictions. Um, and by jurisdictions, I mean here in the United States, those churches that are connected to the historic patriarchates in the old countries. So you think of the ecumenical patriarch, for example, or the patriarch of Antioch, in my case, who's my patriarch. Um, being a member of the Antiochian Archdiocese here in the United States, we're historically connected to the patriarchate of Antioch. So... Um, Just to uh, explain that who the four great patriarchies... Yeah. Yeah. In... in in Orthodox ecclesiology, historically, we recognize something called the Pentarchy, um, which are the historic sees in the ancient church. So um, among them, first, you would have the See of Rome. Uh, then you would have the See of Constantinople, or the Ecumenical Patriarchate. You would have Antioch. You would have Jerusalem, and then Alexandria. Um, and Jerusalem is commonly understood to be uh, a patriarchate of, of, of honor, because it's where the church began, right? And it's the See of St. James. So, um, and in an Orthodox understanding, um, after the 11th century, it's understood that Rome split from this historic ecclesiology and went its own way. And so we recognize um, the Pope as the Bishop of Rome, Patriarch of the West, to be sure, but um, among the other claims of Catholicism about his office, obviously we don't accept those. So, yeah. Which is somewhat similar to <clears throat> Anglicanism. Yeah. Yeah. To some sure, sure. Sure. Yep. And I think just going back to diverge our train of thought a little bit there, even going back to the, the act of the tonsure, mm. I think there's something really powerful about that that adds a sense of gravitas to the vocation that you're pursuing and making it known that you're doing something that is much more than just, well, you're doing another job, you're volunteering in the church. Sure. I think it's important for even especially lay people to take those things with the same amount of seriousness. 
yeah. as, um, as um, ordained people. I mean, I, I guess I could compare it, uh, you know, you would see in some more of the, you know, the low church Protestant traditions where they talk about, you know, ministries in the church, mm -hmm. right? Um, Orthodox commonly don't think like that. If, if, if you want to do something in the church, you, you have to be tonsured or be ordained, hmm. right? Um, if you want to do something in some formal capacity, particularly liturgically, which is where all the work of the church really is done anyway. It's in the context of the liturgy, right? So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, as a note, uh, <coughs> Nathan, the, the West had all the minor orders too. Yes, that's right. And in Roman Catholicism, you know, we think of the three orders, bishop, priest, and deacon. Um, but until Vatican II, all the minor orders were necessary. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to be ordained, eventually a priest uh, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, you had to go through the minor acolyte, right. doorkeeper, reader, sure. all yeah. of those things. Yeah. So um, it's not that long ago. And so Anglicanism inherited that until the Reformation, and Cranmer reduced, got rid of the minor orders, and just had the three orders of deacon, presbyter, and bishop. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. So, yeah. so it's not, we're not cut off from that tradition. Yeah. No, 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 not by any means. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think that's really helpful context to understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, oh, go ahead, Corey. So some, some people <clears throat> will also ask about the beards. They're, they're always curious oh, I was about getting the there. beards. Um, I thought you just never shaved since I met you. Yeah, <laughs> it could be that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I became orthodox. It's just for hairy people. Um, so uh, the, the, the history behind that practice is interesting. Um, it, it really has its base in uh, the Old Testament. Mm. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus and Numbers, um, where there are injunctions against, you know, uh, one, cutting your hair, and also for males to shave. You know, you're not supposed to shave. Um, and it was adopted pretty much from the beginning of the church where men would wear beards in most cases um, and not cut their hair. Um, and then sometimes people have asked me, said, well, wait a second, um, isn't there something in the letters of Paul that says, you know, you should not grow your hair long and all this stuff? And Orthodox have always distinguished um, in that instance between laity and clergy. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, um, sure, the, the laity should clean up their act a bit, but the, the, the clergy can, can be as hairy as they it's want. It's fascinating when you, you look at ancient art, <clears throat> sure. in Latin, yeah. in both in the East and the West, and certainly in the iconography. Yeah. The clergy always had beards. Yeah, they did. Yeah. You know, even if you look at uh, all the early popes have beards, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and all the later expressions of uh, yeah. paintings of them. It's, it, it's interesting because the early Middle Ages is where you start to see um, a change in that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's actually an instance where, um, when the mutual excommunications took place between Cardinal Humbert, um, representing the papacy in the 11th century, and then the ecumenical patriarchate, um, one of the one of the criticisms that Cardinal Humbert had of Eastern clergy is that they continued to grow their beards and grow their hair, and they weren't looking like their brother Latin clergy in the West who were shorn and clean mm -hmm. and, and whatnot by that point. Which is interesting because the, the, the Latin clergy ended up going back to the pre-Christian Roman practice of, of being clean-shaven. I mean, you can look at the art, for example, the Republican era of Rome, and men are clean-shaven, and right. their hair is shorn and whatnot, you know. Um, they didn't look like the ancient Greeks. The Greeks were hairy people, <laughs> you know, so um, it, it's interesting how far back that goes even before Christianity, you yeah, know, so, yeah. 
Yeah. But it, it became um, fairly common after World War I, for example, as the Orthodox Church was coming into the West for a lot of clergy to begin to trim their beards if just not grown at all, and they would just shave, right? And they keep their hair short. Um, and uh, my priest, for example, he doesn't really have a beard. He's got some scruff. Um, but and he keeps his hair very short. Most clergy I know have short hair. Um, I don't see long hair unless I go to one of the monasteries. Mm. And they, they, their beards are obviously very long, yeah. and they have the long hair. And, yeah. So well, Ultimately, the Catholic well, clericals are about identification. Sure, yeah. It identifies us to the world who we are. Right. Uh, I've spoken about this in our context many times. It's, uh, it's not about being better than our evangelical brethren or anybody else in the Christian fold that doesn't have the tradition of wearing clerical identification. Mm -hmm. But uh, it certainly is a bigger challenge when you have to live your daily life in public mm. and clericals than yeah. if you're not. You, right. can, you can't hide. Yeah, you can't hide, and Christians shouldn't be hiding from giving the right. giving the testimony that's in us. Right. And so there's it, there's a lot of biblical uh, power mm -hmm. to yeah. to wear in the cassock or wearing clericals. Yeah, and they, you know, it, it and it fosters in you the the desire to be more responsible. Oh, the need to be, right? right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. you just can't walk around in this thing and continue to behave the way. You know, that yeah, you're used like to. Doofus, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you have to watch what you say. You have to be sober minded. And yeah, you actually more like the Good Samaritan, don't you? Yeah, you absolutely do. You absolutely do. So it, it has practical use as well. Although no. it is a pain in the butt to walk upstairs. I can imagine. <laughs> and that's, I almost tripped coming in here. You know, and, and not to keep, but uh, so for gen generations in England, uh, Anglican would have wore a cassock. Yeah. That would have been yeah. all the way up until the 50s um, with the short, what do they, what do they call them? You know, they only came up to the knees. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the waistcoats. The waistcoats. Yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. cassocks would have been standard. Yes. And, and also, uh, in the Anglican tradition, we think of bishops were in purple, and uh, that's, only, that's not even 100 years old, that mm. tradition. So before the turn of the 20th century, you never saw an Anglican bishop in right, purple yeah. or the, the violet, whatever now, they would have been in black. And so um, things that modern people think go back centuries don't, or even to right. antiquity is not true. Yeah. Uh, right. But yeah, the cassock was just a standard part of <clears throat> Anglicanism from the Reformation carrying over from the medieval Catholic Church. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 and I've understood as well um, that the clerical collar itself, or you know, the suit, it's written to the Presbyterians in the 19th century in Scotland, yeah. I understand. So, originates? That, that's what I, yeah, that's what I've heard anyway. Um, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's actually, in England, it started before tab collars were worn, collars were worn by Anglicans before Romans. And it was a turning around of the, of, of the, of the collar. Sure, sure. You know how the the end, how our tab collar uh, lacked the tab collars, but the click collars yeah. used to be worn the opposite way by men yeah. in England, and right. so the tradition became the clergy were at the opposite way to be identifiable yeah. in, in the address. And okay, so okay. in the English-speaking West, it originates with Anglicans, not with Romans. Yeah, Romans just wore a cassock without a tab. Right, right. Just interesting things. Yeah, yeah. People would never something you never think about. Would never assume that, right? right? And now it's it's and it was illegal. 
in England. That's right. Yeah. Unless you were a member of the established church, the right. were clerical. So Methodists couldn't wear them. Nobody else could wear them. Only Anglicans right. could wear them. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't want. I'm, I'm aware. I don't want to turn this into a long rabbit hole because it could. But I think it's worth mentioning, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, <laughs> along with the points just mentioned about clerical dress. The the other part to keep in mind is that it is not intended to be a matter of personal expression of no. the priest or the clergy, which right. clearly it has been distorted into mm. with all sorts of different yes. colors and adornments. <laughs> oh, I'm sure yeah. you both could think of many, many examples that you've seen in your time, <laughs> yep. but which ultimately just result in, in distractions and are only matters of Pride. About, oh, and draw, yeah, it's about drawing attention to yourself with all your colors on. It's, right. It's absurd. Yeah. You're supposed to be blend into the, no one clergyman's more distinguishable from the other. Yeah. It's the same reason why you wear vestments uh, in worship. It's so that you, you represent the common priesthood, uh, or the ordained, not, you know, you don't just don't pick out what you want to wear so that you look better than yes, somebody else right. down the road. Right. right. It's just total distortion that we have in contemporary, especially traditions that have borrowed liturgical practices of the historic church. It's pretty gross. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not the most attractive yeah. thing. I mean, in, in Orthodoxy, it's pretty, it's pretty streamlined. You know, cassocks are black. Sometimes they might be like a dark blue or... White, white is common, for example, depending upon your rank in the priesthood, you might wear white on occasion, but otherwise, and there's some variations aesthetically between um, Greek cassocks and um, Slavonic or Russian cassocks, um, where the neck is more opened in a Greek cassock, and you can see under it, whereas mm. the Slavonic covers the whole neck. Like I'm wearing for it now, it's, it's a Russian cassock, so it covers the whole neck. Right. Yeah. A Latin cassock would be buttoned straight. Now, Correct, yes. Anglican cassock would be to the left, the buttons would be yeah. to the left. Yeah, if you, if you know it, you, you, you'd be able to pick any of these guys out yep. and say, oh, I know what he is. I can tell by what he's wearing this, he's this. Yep. I mean, but if you don't know and, you know, you just assume that like, this is just some weird person walking yeah. around. Just a weirdo. Yeah. Just a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Or a Muslim. I've been mistaken for a Muslim. Yeah. Yes. I have. I, have. I, can imagine. Um, I, have a I don't know why. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, you know, the, 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 the Orthodox cassock is, is very similar in style to uh, Turkish robes. Yes. Mm. Um, you know, and after the Ottoman conquest of, of the old Byzantine Empire, um, it was interesting to see, you know, Muslims wearing similar dresses as, as Orthodox clergy. So, and that, that's when, in fact, Orthodox clergy began adopting different colors mm. to distinguish them from the Muslims. So, yeah. Yep. One more thought on the beards as it comes to mind. Well, two more thoughts. I think first, that probably officially precludes me from joining the Orthodox Church. I'm sorry <laughs> if you were getting any ideas, Corey, but there's just there's just nothing going on yeah, here. 59, I can't grow a beard. Yeah. But I think it's also interesting, the point that you make about the role of beards in Orthodoxy. You almost see a, a parallel, if you could call it that, emerging recently in other Western traditions, some in some really among like radtrads and Catholicism yeah. or or the cage stage sort of Presbyterians. <laughs> and, what, does that what does that mean? Cage stage. So this is a this is a, this is. is a diversion. But when you go through, my age here. when you go through uh, five point Calvinism, you reach a point when you first convert to 
Calvinism, so to speak, where you go through the cage stage where you're like caged and you're, it's like being a mad trad where you're, you're like foaming at the mouth. Like you got to tell everybody about double predestination. Yeah. <laughs> I speak in uh, hyperbole. So I remember when Corey was like this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Cage stage, not, yeah. not, not like about Nicola, Calvinism. But either, no, like, no. either like Nicholas Cage, like losing <laughs> yeah, his yeah, mind, right, right. or like Cage, like stuck <laughs> yeah, in yeah, a cage. I can see you doing right, a Nicholas Cage invitation right now. <laughs> 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 like Saturday Night Live version. Yeah. So that's what that is. Okay. All um, right. Yeah, beards are in. Be- but beards be- are back. Beards, are, beards yeah. are in, not just among the, the jokes that I like to make, but beards are in, I think, be, as a reaction to the demasculinization yeah. of men in the I was culture. Just say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I've always had the observation that when, when politicians and businessmen start growing facial hair, it's a real trend. You know it's like yeah. beards are back. Um, because when was the last time you saw, for example, you know, high statesmen grow a beard, you know? Right. Rutherford B. Hayes, you mm. know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. right? Yeah. I mean yeah. mo- <laughs> most presidents used to have beards. Oh yeah. Right. Grant. Grant, yeah, you know, yeah. Lincoln, all those guys. Yeah. Um, it's very common. But uh, it's coming back, yeah. It's in, and that that is part of the attraction, I guess. You know, for, of orthodoxy for yeah. some people. He's like, not that you need to become orthodox to grow a beard. I just tell people, like, well, you can grow a beard, you know, and it's just grow a beard. Um, but it's very common too for a lot of converts to orthodoxy. They just before they even become orthodox, they come in with this long beard, and usually a good bishop will tell them you need to shave. Hmm. It's a lot of guys. We're in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Big trouble. You fair skin Irish Scottish folks are uh, excessive genes. Well, I think that's a good segue, Corey. You mentioned part of the draw of orthodoxy. Would you be willing to share some of what drew you to the orthodox faith? Yeah. Um, For me, it, it it was the worship of the church. Um, you know, I, I was I was in seminary as a Protestant, um, and I had been reading the Fathers. I mean, you had to do that, um, and I found the Eastern Fathers, the Cappadocians, very interesting. And um, but it, it was not it, it wasn't a heady thing for me. It really wasn't. Um, I started to take an interest in seeing how you know, the other side worshipped and said, well, I want to go to this church. I want to, you know, see what this is like. Um, I, I mean, the first church I had visited was a, was a Greek-speaking church in Massachusetts. Um, it was a pretty old church. It was over 100 years old. Very, very deep ethnic community. Um, everyone was English-speaking, of course, as, you know, their first language, but liturgically, everything was in Greek. And so I didn't quite know what was going on. Um, I mean, I'd been studying Greek in seminary, so I could pick out a few words here and there, but that was it. Um, other than that part in the liturgy where um, you would see what, as, as you know, Western Christian, you call the Eucharistic canon. I said, okay, well, I know what's going on here. That's, that's they're getting ready to have communion. Um, otherwise, I had no idea what was going on, but in the most wonderful way. You know, it just didn't matter. Um, I was just blown away by the, the music, uh, which I'd never heard anything like it before, mm-hmm. um, and the aesthetics of the church. Um, and I don't want to make it seem superficial, but I mean, it, what it really was for me, you know, after after thinking about it, after experiencing it, then leaving, and I think it was like the, the incarnation, um, the, the reality of the incarnation was mm-hmm. like really present 
for me in a way that I it had never been before, right? Um, all four senses, right, of, of, you know, human experience were engaged in worship. Um, and, and, and it's not that that isn't necessarily present, at least ideally, in Western Christianity, right? But at the same time, you know, the, the idea that, that God becoming man unites heaven and earth, right? The material with the immaterial, it was just driven home to me in a way mm. that I never experienced it before. And I just said, that's, I want to go back. You know, and, I, and I just kept going, right? And, um, and this was during my final year at, at, at you know, a Protestant seminary, mm-hmm. right? And so I kept that very close to my chest, you know what I mean? Uh, and so um, I just kept going. And I said, I, I like this. Um, met my wife. And then, you know, she was coming from a completely different background. Um, and so that was a bit of a detour for a short time. But and then orthodoxy, though, just was there. It came back. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided that I wanted to do this. So, yeah. That's really I, cool. I, I think it's a really <clears throat> important distinction. And um, the West, the atonement is driven. Yeah. Theology, liturgy especially since the Reformation controversy, you know, the, the Lutheran, the Lutheran um, emphasis on the, on the cross, mm-hmm. the cross, right? Not that, not that we shouldn't have an emphasis on the cross. That's not sure, right. what we're saying. But that um, to an extent to the um, detriment of the incarnation, right? Yeah. So what, what Eastern Christianity, you're right, it just flows out of the incarnation. So... Uh, that's why the transfiguration has so much meaning sure in eastern uh, theology and so forth uh, Anglicanism is interesting you know liturgically so like the traditional book of common prayer is very Lutheran it's driving of the atonement of the Eucharistic canon but by the 17th century through the high church Anglican divines the incarnation became dominant in Anglican theology so it's a paradox hmm. right you have a liturgy that's driven by atonement theology, mm-hmm. but the, the high church end of Anglicanism is, is incredibly incarnational mm. and has been for, well, since the Caroline Divines in the sure, 17th yeah. century. Mm. Right. So, so we have this Benedictine spirituality in Anglicanism that isn't uh, conscience in the other Protestant traditions in the West. Right? So it's... That's where Anglicanism and Orthodoxy had this touchstone that has been somewhat helpful in yeah. conversations. Yeah, there, and there also, too, um, within Anglicanism in the late 17th century, you had uh, you know, the Cambridge Platonists. Yes. Um, who became very interested in reappropriating a lot of the, the Greek patristic um, you know, the mindset of theosis and deification. And, um, when you say it crystallized with uh, Michael Ramsey. I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Great, probably, probably the most significant Archbishop <clears throat> in Canterbury in the 20th century, from 61 to 74. He was the Archbishop. He loved Eastern Orthodoxy mm. and had tremendous relationships with mm-hmm. the patriarchs and, yeah. and, and Orthodoxy. And so he really brought his persona, brought a lot of iconography and all of these things back into Anglicanism. That again, just has been reassumed as if Anglicans always did these things. Sure, right, right. But actually, if there was an icon in Anglican Church in the 19th century, they would all faint it. Right. Yeah. Yes. But now with yeah. there's icons everywhere in the Anglican yeah. world. Yeah. 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 And he wrote a book on uh, the Transfiguration. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good, it was a good book. Yep. 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 For sure. Yep. 
Yeah, there's an interesting history there too um, of engagement between the Church of England um, and the Eastern Church. It goes as far back as the early 17th century. It does. Mm. Yes, know, it does. Um, when you started to be, uh, you started to see, for example, um, an interest on the part of many in the Church of England to, uh, in order to justify, for example, their own independent existence and their separation and, and not a need for dependence upon Rome. You know, they went to the East. Um, and then also in the East, because they were under the Ottomans by this point, there was a massive dearth of, of access to Greek texts, which at the universities in England, Oxford and Cambridge, they had an abundance of. Right. And so there was a mutual interest great, great that struck up. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so um, that, that itself, based purely more on self-interest, of course, on both right. parts. It was, but nonetheless, it was, it was the beginning of a conversation that took place. And the power of the, the uh, British <clears throat> Empire. Yeah. And its ability, well, ability, at least it's being a foil to the Ottomans and to yes. all oh, yeah. these other things. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a Greek college, even in Oxford, that was established in order mm-hmm. to train Orthodox clergy because they, in some cases, they could not receive proper training under the Ottomans. So they went to the West, which, you know, had mixed right. products, but, you know, um, still... The relationship between Orthodoxy and Anglicanism in the early 20th century was much closer than Anglicanism ever got to reunification with Rome. Um, Anglican orders, the great controversy between mm. Catholicism and Anglicanism. <coughs> you know, Pope Leo XIII declared Anglican orders were null and void, but the Patriarch Constantinople had recognized Anglican orders in 1922. And then the ensuing patriarchs, almost all of them, did it in the course of the next decade. There would have been a much better chance of uh, continued fraternity between Anglicanism, at least high church Anglicanism, and orthodoxy if Anglicanism didn't absolutely lose its mind. <laughs> you know, and since 1930, uh, uh, Lambeth said birth control was fine, and then the ordination mm. of women, the homosexual issue, and all that. And then Orthodox theology, its economy of salvation, uh, it's not just about this tacit succession of orders. It's about you have to have the faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's, it, that's a good it's point. It's Cypriotic. Yeah. St. Cyprian as opposed yeah. to Augustinian, where oh, you t- just entirely, have, yeah. have this tacit succession. So it, it's a shame. Yeah, that Anglicanism lost its mind. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, yeah. there was there were points in history, sure, where they, they came very close. I mean, I mean, so close in fact that you know, even now in Orthodoxy, there's the existence of you know what we call the Western Rite. Right. Mm. You know, um, right, which but, is basically the Book of Common Prayer with some variation to it. Yeah, yeah, there's some yeah. There, there, there's some there's some Byzantine amendations to it. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's essentially what it is, mm. right? Um, which is which is interesting. I mean, it's not. Entirely my cup of tea, but right. you know, I, I do, you know, I do see the value in it. Um, but but it's a testimony, obviously, to just how close the, these two different traditions came to, you know, interacting with one another and a willingness to to interact. It ain't going to happen now. Oh no, 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 that's that's over with. I mean, they you know they still they still get together and talk and stuff, but it's 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 kind of facile. It's, oh, it it's is. not going it anywhere. Is. You know, we have no intention yeah. of, of doing anything. You know, and. And, and they're not serious either, you know, because we know what the issue is. It's, it's, 
it, even among conservative Anglicans, it's it's the homosexuality is not the issue. The issue is the ordination of women, because there's still conservative Anglicans who have no problem with the ordination right. of women. No, you'd have you to know, get so. into the continuing yeah. movements to right. really yeah. have absolutely to have yeah. any, and they're so small. You don't yeah. have enough gravitas, right? To, to really um, right. It's almost not worth orthodoxy's energy. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, I believe that within orthodoxy there's enough charity and goodwill for us just to talk to anybody who wants to talk. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, there isn't really many people in orthodoxy whom I'm aware of that would look at the situation in Western churches and say, well, you know, this is their bed, they made it, forget about them. Um, I'm sure there are some people like that, you know, and yeah, I know there are, but most people I know say, no, let's just be a haven and, and right. you know, keep our doors open and say, you know, come talk to us whenever you want. We're happy to help, you know. <laughs> um, it's certainly my position personally, you know, um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always hurdles, of course, you know, I don't want to make it seem, you know, like the primrose path, um, but... Um, but, but a lot of that can be can be fixed just again by having conversations, right? You know, really, it's, it it doesn't have to it doesn't have to preclude um, a lot of things that you know generally more conservative Christians would be uncomfortable with, like joint prayer services and all that stuff. I mean, we we don't do that obviously, but there's, there's just nothing wrong with talking to someone, right? You exactly. Know? <laughs> Conversation has to be based in truth, though, right? So sure. Yeah. It has to be a, a return to sources. Yeah. And if, if that's you know if that's not going to be one half of the dialogue's goal, then there's no point to the dialogue. Right. Right. If it's just going to be well, let's be diverse and inclusive. Right? Yeah. You know, there's is a mutable truth that's not about being diverse sure. about, and so right. there's no sense having a conversation right. about it. Right. Yeah. And you can and, and there's plenty of, of, of context in which you can have very good conversations still with folks, and so yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into some of those as Nathan gets down his list there mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, well, we've answered a lot of the questions, too. It's uh, by no means exhaustive. And I think that conversation, those types of conversations, as with the goal of our conversations on this show, will be ever more important if conservative denominations, let's say, conservative Christian traditions across the ecumenical spectrum look to ally together in defense of Christian moral virtue against the advances of the culture. We'll have to be able to get beyond our preconceived <coughs> notions or our caricatures about denominations, about churches on the other side of this river or the other river and be able to reclaim the commonalities of the great tradition, as we've talked yeah, about well, in the previous common, episode. You need common cause. You need, you need, if you have a common cause, you're not going to have dialogue about anything. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if Corey and I rep were official representatives of two sides of the river, uh, we're not going to start out with uh, the split of 1054 or the clause and then the Nicene Creed. We're going to talk about how we can ally in modern moral issues that are immutable. Sure. In the Christian yeah. tradition, and then and then that brings you into closer fraternal relationship that allows you to have these other conversations in charity. Exactly. And um, mm -hmm. but main, you know, Protestant denominations aren't likely to do that. <laughs> these other issues have become far more important than these patristic truths that we yeah. would hold dear to our hearts. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's true. 
I want to turn back to the use of icons. I think if we look at the, say, caricature of orthodoxy that unfamiliar people have in their minds, right? It's the beards, it's the incense, and it's icons. And you mentioned the use of icons, and we know that icons are used yes. uh, in orthodoxy especially, but also very much in Catholicism and Anglicanism. Can you speak to the importance and the role of icons? Because I think for many, it's just not something that occurs to them, yes. or it may even be, or may certainly be, a topic that is uncomfortable for them to broach. I would say it's unbiblical. Or unbiblical. Sure. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, that's that's always an interesting conversation to have, and uh, it, it always goes in a, in, a, in a host of different directions. Uh, I remember a few years back, just to give one example, um, I was I was in a Greek parish where I was attending at the time, um, and uh, market popped by. I remember we had a festival. We have that's another thing too. Orthodox love their festivals. Oh yeah. Um, we talk about that maybe later. Um, <laughs> And so uh, the, the parish I was in at the time, um, this festival that they would have once a year, it's, it's, the, it's a big money draw for them, and obviously it helps keep the parish going. Um, and so a lot of people will attend this, and we'll open up the church, and we'll give tours and whatnot. People naturally are interested because they, they've never seen a church like this before, mm. right? Um, and so they, they come in, they're initially interested, um, they're curious, um, and in some cases, once you start explaining why the church is arranged or organized the way that it is, um, some people will you know, deepen their interest. Some people will be maybe even a little scandalized. Um, and I remember uh, in one such instance, we had a, a group of uh, Roman Catholics who were just fascinated by the church. Um, mm. And they sat down and you know they engaged us in conversation, lay people. And they were from a Catholic parish just down the road, uh, Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was interesting talking to them, right? Because there, there are all these, these again, like you said, the, these caricatures yeah. of Eastern Christianity, you know, that, that, they, that they were talking about. And, you know, it's like it's its, it's, its own separate vocabulary in a sense, right? Yeah. And as Orthodox, I can understand it because I came from Western Christianity, so I know what they're saying and why they're saying it. But... Um, you know, cradle orthodox, and I don't like using that term because you're not born into the church, you're baptized into it, but um, they hear that language and thinking, they look at me and say, Corey, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, like, what do they mean when they say that, you know? Yes. And um, so it's interesting to have those conversations. <clears throat> but they were fascinated. You know, they were fascinated with the imagery. Um, and then they would say things like, oh, you know, I, I, miss, I miss when, you know, our churches used to look like this, you know, before Vatican II. And, you know, now they just look like civic centers or, or whatever it may yeah. be, you know. Right. And, um, and you know. Deco arts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I feel for them, of course, you know, because there's a tradition there that was obviously lost. Um, so that's interesting. But then you, get, then you get some Protestants who come in and then, you know, they say, well, this is pretty. You know, but like, what, what is the point of this? Like, I don't understand this, you know. Why is and, Jesus on the ceiling? Right, you know, and, and what's, with the, what's, with, what's with Mary, you know, you know, behind, you know, whatever that is up there. I say, oh, it's the altar and, you know, the, the altar space. And then you have to explain to them the icon screen and, you know, like, well, what do you do with all these pictures? I said, well, we reverence them. You know, they're not just aesthetics. It's not just decorations. You Could know? you take a moment to explain yes. the icon screen? Yeah, sure. The, the icon screen or the iconostas, um, 
unfortunately, contrary to what many Orthodox might believe, um, it, it was not used by the apostles. <laughs> it, was a late, it was a later development, I of course. I'm hearing that. Um, it's very, it's very, it's very similar to uh, the rood screen. Rood screen, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, the rood mm -hmm. screen, like you would see in the in, you know, the medieval churches, um, and even today, still in some you know Anglican yeah. churches, right? Um, but only the only difference being, of course, is that we filled in the spaces mm. with icons, right? Um, and then uh, the icons became a source of reverence and veneration, not because we're, we're venerating the wood, right, or the, the paint, right, on the artwork, because the, the adoration and the, the, the devotion that we show to the icon, the theology goes, to the person that it represents beyond it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and again, it goes back to the incarnation, Right. What does Christ do in the incarnation? He unites the material with the immaterial. Mm. Right. He by becoming man, like true man. Right. It's not. Um, he's not a ghost. He's not adopting a body and then leaving it behind as, as as a former shell. Right. In the ascension, he ascends into heaven as fully God and fully man. Right. With a human body. With a yeah. human body, and he still has it now. Right. That's you know. Blood, flesh, and bones. That's right, and so. The justification of the icons has always been that, you know, in God becoming man, God is saying that matter matters, right? Exactly. Um, the body matters, right? Um, Greek philosophy matters. Yes, yes. And in fact, to that point, tomorrow um, is the Sunday of Orthodoxy in the Orthodox Church, or the Triumph of Orthodoxy, as it's also known. Um, and it's a, it's a Sunday where we celebrate the... Uh, the triumph of the, the uh, ecumenical fathers of the seventh ecumenical council mm. of Nicaea, Nicaea II, um, which saw the victory of the icons, yes. mm. right, against the iconoclast. And so icons are very important. Um, they are always reverenced when you enter the church, we kiss them, mm. right? Um, great care is taken when they are created. We don't say that the icons are painted, but they're actually written mm. because they're telling a story. Well, tell them how they're made. I mean, the, the layering of it. Right? Yes, you're really looking. Yeah, talk through, about that. You're looking through time and space, even dimension into eternity. You are. You are. And I'm no expert. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been into art, and you know, I had a little stint in art school. But um, I gave I gave a little shot into icon hmm. um, writing, and it, it didn't go so well. But uh, the method behind it is is very interesting. Um, there's a canonicity to it, mm. right? Um, not every icon is simply an icon because it looks like one. There is a method to the creation of an icon. There's a way that it is to be done and a way that it should not be done. Um, and so what you commonly do is you start by a layer of the darkest colors and then you work on your way from the darkest colors to the light, mm. right? Um, and then you would lay down after the gold leaf that goes behind the image, right? Um, which, which also is pretty expensive. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an intricate process, and you really have to study it. You go to school, and it's a big deal. I mean, you don't really see it here, but in, in the old countries, there were whole schools dedicated to hmm. training iconographers, right? Um, because they're the ones who really make the churches come alive when we're building these churches, right? And so icons are very important. They're not optional. Um, there are certain images that cannot be depicted, for example, in icons. For example, um, canonically, you are not supposed to represent an image of the Father in iconography because no one has ever seen the Father, right? right? Um, so they are, they... they, they Non-corporeal. Non right. Yeah. And so they, they serve the function of always communicating proper dogma, 
mm. right? Proper doctrine, um, and that's why they're so important. So, and it's it's very common, for example, to go into uh, you know a faithful Orthodox home and see lots of icons, right? Um, they should be there. Um, so, the the interesting thing is it, it's it's fallen out of favor in the West. Um, people forget, and I've had this conversation also with Roman Catholics, people forget that some of the greatest offenders of the icons were themselves the popes. Very early on, if you look at the 7th and the 8th century, um, many of those who defended the icon against the iconoclasts were, were popes, right? And so it's something that's fallen into um, either disuse or just almost myth, in a sense, right, or a legend, um, and been replaced by statues. Yeah, it, yeah. Right. it became part of the, the political diatribe, yeah. statuary and icons. Yes, right. Between East and West. And, yeah. You know, I, I think about, Corey, when we've I've talked about this for decades, and, you know, with some of our Protestant evangelical <coughs> brethren, uh, their uh, reasons they would disagree or even reject. Oh, sure, yeah. But at the same time, you're talking about people that have pictures of their families all over their oh, world. Oh, right, yeah. Right? Yeah. And they, they kiss grandma's picture because they want to remember grandma. Mm -hmm. And it, there's, uh, if you go to the headstone, there's... Mm -hmm carved into it this relief of grandpa on his you know John Deere tractor right. and all those things and but this inability to connect logically yeah well they'll put mangers in their front yard and right and but 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 yeah. an icon which goes it goes back to antiquity in the Christian church yeah is representative of God becoming man is yeah is outside of the bounds right and so right. we're so stuck in the cultural prejudice about things mm. and Protestant West about yeah. so much of this stuff that um, again Anglicanism got lucky in a sense it, it, because of the nature of architecture inheriting the medieval churches that idea of and it, it didn't get totally gutted of its femininity because of Marian feasts sure. that remained in the prayer book and so forth and so the the incarnation couldn't help but seep its way back yeah. into, through Anglican worship and so as opposed to the Kirk in the whole Reformed Presbyterian. Yeah. There's thing. one stained glass window in the whole of Scotland right. I heard. Right. So you need a whitewashed church yeah. and so forth. It's very difficult after centuries of that to make yeah. this retransition to the historicity mm -hmm. of beauty, right? Yeah. The, the beauty of Christian worship. Yes. Worship the Lord in holiness and in beauty. It's, yeah. It's difficult. It is. Um, and sometimes when you have conversations about iconography or just church aesthetics, um, modern practice and modern custom in Western churches, you know, sort of becomes, uh, you know, the foundation for the conversation. And they, you know, they forget about the Middle Ages and, you know, Gothic cathedrals and whatnot and what they were trying to communicate, right, with architecture and... Um, which is interesting because, you know, in, in the Gothic churches, right, they, they give you a very specific understanding of God, right, because if you've been inside a Gothic church, you, you, know, you have these ceilings that are just huge, and they go so far up, you know, it's, it's like you're trying to and touch the sky, right? It's, it's yeah. in cruciform shape. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, it's now designed by, with a purpose. Yeah, exactly, right? It's saying something about who God is. And then by contrast, you know, you would look at Byzantine architecture, and it's just the opposite. Everything is very low. Right, it's, it's, very, it's very much right there because you're supposed to be able to touch, touch it. God, yeah. right, and participate in God. And yeah, so it's very interesting. But that's something, again, that's, that's just lost nowadays. They, they, don't quite, they don't take that into consideration, right? 
which is regrettable because yeah. that it's it's not because your aesthetics are necessarily wrong, right? It's it's well, it's more dangerous in my opinion is that it's telling me that there might be something defunct with your understanding of the incarnation. That's the oh, problem. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's oh, yes. that's the real problem. So yeah, we we've uh, both worked on that. <clears throat> sermons and some writings in the last several months about the incalculable importance of the incarnation. Yeah. Without the incarnation, you can't get to the cross. Right. Right? Yeah. You, you can't get yeah. to Pentecost. You certainly can't get to the Ascension. Yeah. Right? And so, um, you know, again, the systematic ability to do theology mm-hmm. in, in the context of Orthodox Christology. Yes. Is such a challenge yeah. for the West. The, the, the whole, I mean, the Orthodox, well, you know, when it says that the whole life of Christ, right, is, is a work of God uniting man, right? It's not singularly focused, for example, on atonement or the mm-hmm. cross, right? Um, and speaking, you know, Orthodox and Roman Catholics, they, they can meet somewhere on that, but, you know, you're trying to speak to most Protestants, right? It's just it's lost on them because it's it, they're so atonement driven and there's a very specific understanding of atonement right it's it's substitutionary theory um which isn't in the orthodox church and we don't believe in penal substitution no, you no. know um so people a bunch of people just fainted you know pro- probably <laughs> wasn't my intention to hurt anyone but um but yeah so it's, it's a huge difference right and it's also connected to well, why does god become man right right god we don't orthodox don't agree for example with anselm on why God became man. Oh, no. Right? So no, That's why I'm here to tell you you're crazy. Yeah, right? You know, so... <laughs> Are you an Archbishop of Canterbury? A yeah, saint at Archbishop uh, right? of Canterbury? <laughs> so, yeah, but, there's, there's differences there. That, but I, th- that I think about Irenaeus's great line, about that, which so connects us to the, to the um, Orthodox understanding of incarnation. The glory of God is the living man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is really about human beings become... Not, not something otherworldly. It's about human beings truly becoming human. It's interesting, right? you know, when Archbishop exactly. Ramsey, is, he's buried in Canterbury Cathedral, and, he, you know, all these great prelates can put anything they want mm. on, their, um, on their tomb. That's the only thing you put on there. Oh, that's right, yeah, that's on his gravestone. Quote from Aaron. Yeah, yes. wow. That's right. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, the glory of God is a man truly so alive. Cool. Yeah. 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 Glory it says of the a incarnation. Lot. I think that's a great place to take a break and we'll finish up the rest of our questions when we get back. Super. Cool. Guess what? We were having such a great conversation that we had to split it into two episodes. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, we would love to stay in touch with you. Why not click the link in the description and join our email list? We'll send you occasional emails about new episodes and other important updates. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless.